Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Um, so today I would like to talk about the lines with no hindrance in the mind no hindrance therefore no fear far beyond deluded thoughts this is nirvana um, we're all practicing in nirvana right now it's hard to recognize but this is it the term nirvana um, comes from the Pali word nibbana, which is a term from uh, the culinary world. Uh, it's a term used in cooking. When you uh, um, take a pot off a flame, and that's something I think all of us are starting to get to know in this practice what it's like to just take the pot off the flame. Sometimes we don't even recognize we're burning. Sometimes we can't recognize we're on fire. Or sometimes we can't recognize that there's a lot of heat and we've been running away, trying not to get burned. Um, and just being able to do that is nirvana. To really love, uh, to get burned, and to keep on going. So, like Davy was just saying, you know, to have the, this darkness in your life, and then to sit here with everybody and say, "Oh my God, I, I'm so glad I'm still alive." I think all of us probably had times in our life where we could have just checked out. We could have uh, elected to be numb. could have taken our own lives. Lots of people do. Probably we all know people who have. And um, I, I think being able to um, know what it's like to be on fire and then also to have this practice to work with being on fire. This is how we start to deepen our, our lives. Um, Red Pine in his translation of the Heart Sutra says um, uh, he doesn't say uh, no hindrance, no fear he said uh, without walls of the mind which is a t I love that translation 
that fearlessness happen where there are not walls in the mind. And it takes a lot of energy to keep walls in the mind. Um, ha Quinn, who I haven't talked too much about, but uh, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the Heart Sutra, listen to what he has to say and some of this passage I have read already. But this is his uh, commentary on this section of the Heart Sutra. Tell us you've discovered greed and anger in saints, but don't give us all that stuff about bodhisattvas depending on wisdom. If you see a single thing around you to depend on, that's not unhindered. You're tied in chains. Bodhisattvas and wisdom are essentially the same, like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. You're neither worldly nor saintly, stupid or wise. What a shame when you draw a snake to add a leg. So this is that first section. Tell us you've discovered greed and anger in saints, but don't give us all that stuff about bodhisattvas and wisdom. Do you all know this? You just get a little too precious about your language, about how you talk about practice. This drives me nuts. When people learn Dharma language and then they can't stop using it. And then that's not the real practice. It's some, we're pointing with this language to something beyond uh, the language we use to talk about practice. Uh, if you see a single thing around you to depend on, that's not unhindered. You're tied in chains. Bodhisattvas and wisdom are essentially the same thing. Right? The bodhisattva and wisdom is the same thing. Bodhisattvas are not cultivating wisdom. Wisdom is not a characteristic of a bodhisattva. It's the same thing. To, to, to be wise is to be able to serve. Is to do something with your knowledge, not just to accumulate it. Like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited, you're neither worldly nor saintly, stupid or wise. And then my favorite line in his commentary, what a shame when you draw a snake to add a leg. Has anyone here ever done calligraphy? So this is like someone doing calligraphy, but not paying attention. So they're drawing a snake, they're not paying attention, and then there's just a little mark off the edge. What a shame when you have this nice line by accident to add a leg, because you're not paying attention. What a shame to draw a snake and add a leg. What a shame when you sit here opening up to sound to just keep adding legs onto it. One idea, another idea, another thought. Next thing you know, you're not here anymore. So not being here is really um, the anticipation of the future. And according to this section of the Heart Sutra, to have walls in the mind that are built up so that our mind is oriented towards the future is fear. So fear is anticipation of the future pain. When we anticipate future pain, we're caught in the mind state of fear. 
And when we can really be present with fear, we can find the energy in fear that frees us. If you have no fear in your life, uh, you probably aren't alive. If you don't have fear a uh, few times in the week, you're probably not risking enough in your life to actually feel alive. Maybe some of the risks happen on your yoga mat. Oh, I'm just going to do what feels good. And then there's no risk. Or maybe in your communication with someone. Oh, I'm not going to take a risk. I, I remember very clearly a woman who used to practice at Center of Gravity who was for a long time in the Shivananda lineage and really was taught um, so clearly that she had to be pure, have a life of celibacy. And then after, I think, 30 years... Uh, being uh, in that lineage, she left, and then she fell in love with a woman. And when she fell in love with this woman, uh, early on in the relationship, she didn't like the way that the woman kissed her. So she said, I don't like the way the woman kisses. So I said, oh, well, why don't you maybe make some suggestions about how you know, she might kiss you. And she uh, decided she would end the relationship because uh, it was too much of a risk. Because for her, she was just learning that sexual energy was okay. But the idea actually of articulating something about it, like to say to somebody, I, I don't like how you're kissing. That's a risky thing. And also... Um, in a relationship, that's something the other person would really want to hear about. So anyways, this was her work. And it took her four or five months to be able to actually say this out loud to her partner. So sometimes we have this life of purity and we're really deep in a path. For 30 years, she had a really deep practice. But then there was some area that got left out. And we're the same way. We're practicing here and we're including whatever we can and always we're leaving something out. So always we have to take a risk to be able to open and to try uh, something new. But then also to realize that sometimes our walls are so strong <laughs> that we don't even see them anymore. We're just relying on them all the time. And they imprison us. So um, our nervous system has to be wired so that it gets triggered to respond when we're fearful. And the response when we're fearful is uh, what? Fight or flight. Fight or flight. Tend and befriend. <laughs> Tend and befriend? Yeah. For women. Uh-huh. When fear is problematic, it's when it tricks us into thinking that that's who we are. It changes our viewpoint of ourselves. So there's a certain spectrum of fear that's really, really healthy. Uh, a rabbit that has no fear is a dead rabbit. So we also need to have some fear. But also, when the fear tricks our personality into a way, into a state where we become restless, 
then it's got us. Do you all know this feeling? You're feeling fearful, there's fear arising, and then suddenly it's got you. And then you become restless with the fear. Like, I can't sit with this, I have to do something about this. Nations that are aggressive are nations that can't meet their fear. They're countries that can't pause and actually notice where they're scared. People who are aggressive are people who can't meet their own fear. I read recently a story about somebody who works in prisons who um, has an encounter with someone in a group who's a prisoner who is really terrifying. And he calls this guy. So I don't know if anyone here has ever visited a prison before. But in prisons, they have very good bullshit detectors because that's how people stay alive. And they can tell right away whether you're coming from a place of bullshit or not. And um, so this uh, prisoner who who is kind of like a head of the group, like the leader, uh, he said to this guy, you're full of bullshit. And the guy's response was, you scare me. And apparently, the story goes, they locked eyes for a few minutes. And then the leader put his arm around the guy and said, you're okay. So he met him totally in that moment. You're full of bullshit? How do you respond? Most of us would be scared. And then we would act out of our restlessness can't stay in the fear. And this guy said to the prisoner, you scare me, which is a place of real strength and vulnerability simultaneously. You scare me. And they just stayed there, and then the prisoner said, you're you're okay. okay. Can we do that in ourselves? Places in us that terrify us? And then just to lock eyes with that place and say, you scare me. Um, aggression comes from fear. And our unfaced fears are responsible for ravaging our earth, for drilling. Uh, for taking risks with our environment. Uh, the risks that only an addict would take when its supply is running low. And if we're a culture that wants to move forward to a place of more creativity for future generations, we have to meet our fear. We have to meet our fears as a culture. Uh, fear is a trance state. Being caught in fear is like being in a trance. The word fear, etymologically, comes from the root to strangle. So 
when we're really caught in fear, we're strangling ourselves. We're dampening our energy. We're constricting ourselves. Uh, another cognate of the, the term uh, worry or fear uh, comes from uh, to lie in wait. I like that. So being scared, just waiting back, holding back. And our body of fear is like a suit of armor. So defended. And doesn't everyone here know that experience? When your body is in that state of just being terrified. And what happens? You're frozen. You're frozen. Um, There's a Japanese saying that goes like this. Fear is only as deep as your mind allows. Fear is only as deep as your mind allows. So in our practice, what we're trying to do is really to stop, to stop, and then to allow what's going on to show up. And if we can't hold what's showing up, then we start reinforcing the fear. And there's a kind of feedback, right? That the more you feel fear, the more painful it is to the body. Um, in Buddhism, there are five fears that the Buddha outlined that we can all be caught in. The first fear is the fear of death. And that's the fear, not so much that... Uh, I'm going to die, but the fear that I am going to die. So it's not just that this body is going to come to an end and has an expiry date. It's that this sense of me that I'm constantly investing in and sculpting, I don't know what happens to it. So there naturally will be some fear around death. The second uh, fear that the Buddha outlines is the fear of illness, the fear of being sick. So you can hear it a little bit in all of us, right? Oregano oil. (laughs) The third fear, which I think is really common for people who start to do meditation practice, is the fear of losing your mind. I think when we sit, we are a little bit closer to insanity. Because when you sit, you're a little closer to the state of mind that you find in dreams, where there's not so much time structure. The logic structure dissolves a little bit too. And I think that every day if you sit, it's it's healthier for your sanity because you learn more how to embrace your insanity. And the people who have uh, breakdowns in their life usually have breakdowns in the areas where there's, there's something they haven't been giving attention. And then it comes pushing through. Right? And then they don't know how to relate to it. We all, we all have these areas in our life. You can never not have this. 
you're always going to have some place that you're not giving attention. And then when it shows up, it just slams you. But I think that a daily sitting practice puts us closer to that uh, more irrational dream state that is um, the image world of insanity. And we just get to know it. We get to know it. So the fourth fear the Buddha outlines is the fear of losing your livelihood. And the, 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 the Buddha's decision to create this list of five fears has to do with just outlining um, trance states. These are states where you move into that you end up in a trance. Uh, being scared of death, being scared of being ill, being scared of losing your mind, being scared of not finding a job. It sends you into a trance state. The fifth one is the fear of public speaking. (laughs) Now, don't you think that's funny? That there's these, you know, deep existential... But actually, the Buddha was a great psychologist, and he probably saw this. That actually, the fear of public speaking really put people into this um, edge state, this trance state. And I think one thing all five of these have in common, death, illness, losing your mind, livelihood, public speaking, is they mobilize the full force of our nervous system to treat that mind state as a threat. So um, we are told in 2012 that we should add some other fears to the list. (laughs) which include acrophobia, the fear of heights, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, agoraphobia, the fear of open spaces, phobia, the fear of needles. How do you pronounce that? Brontophobia, the fear of thunder and lightning. Claustrophobia, the fear of confined spaces. Hamartophobia, the fear of sinning. Surophobia, a fear of mice or rats. Necrophobia, the fear of the body decomposing. Pentherophobia, the fear of a mother-in-law. <laughs> Thalassophobia, fear of the sea. Xenophobia, fear of strangers or foreigners. Athazagoraphobia, the fear of being forgotten or ignored. Atichophobia, the fear of failure. Metathesiophobia, the fear of change. So maybe we could add some to the Buddha's list. That's just a few. I mean, pages and pages of Yeah, those are some of the most common ones. I know a website that just lists them. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. There's a great story where um, someone asks the Dalai Lama, "What's the best way to work with fear?" 
and he said, if you have some pain and you can do something about it, then do something about it and don't worry about it. And if you can't do something about it, don't worry about it. (laughs) Don't add to it. Don't invest in it. There's a book called A Policy of Kindness, which are writings about the Dalai Lama. And in it, there's another question where someone comes to him and says, how does one work with deep fear most effectively? And he gives a very detailed teaching to this person. He says, there are quite a number of methods. The first is to think about actions and their effects. When something bad happens, we say, oh, very unlucky. And when something good happens, we say, oh, very lucky. (laughs) Actually, these two, lucky and unlucky, are insufficient. There must be some reason. Because of a reason, a certain time became lucky or unlucky. But usually, we don't go beyond lucky or unlucky. The reason, according to a Buddhist explanation, is past karma and actions. One way to work with deep fear is to think that the fear comes as a result of action in the past. If you have fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there's anything you can do about it. If you can, there's no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, there is also no need to worry about it. Another technique is to investigate who is becoming afraid. This one's good. Examine the nature of yourself. Where is this I? Who is this I? What is the nature of this I? Is there an I beside my physical body and consciousness? This can help. Also, someone engaging in the bodhisattva practices seeks to take other suffering into himself or herself. When you have fear, you can think, others have fear similar to this, so may I take to myself all of their fears. Even though you are opening yourself to greater suffering, taking greater suffering to yourself, your fear will decrease. Isn't that interesting? So when you're really feeling fear, start meditating on other people's fear. Take in everyone else's fear. And your fear will decrease. And we all know that what happens is your fear will decrease and you'll just become pure fear. And then it will pass. Why does it pass? Because it's not personal. It only doesn't pass because it gets identified with. So I don't know about you, but could you do this? Could you do this? Next time you're scared, just start meditating on everyone you know who's scared. And really take their fear in when you inhale. Take in everyone's fear. And the Dalai Lama, if he's right, he says your fear will decrease. It will lessen. In the Yoga Sutra, in the second chapter, line three, Patanjali says, As intense discipline burns up impurities the body and its senses become supremely refined. So as awareness can really be there to burn up what's showing up, your senses become much more refined. So I think that's another way of saying what the Dalai Lama just said. 
if we can allow ourselves to be burnt by what it is we're feeling or scared of, being fully in it, um, our senses become more attuned. Attuned to what? Attuned to others. When we keep feeding fear into the body, we feed desire and restlessness. We feed craving and restlessness. When you're scared, if you can't recognize it, then your mind state becomes restless and you start feeding compulsion, feeding craving, feeding clinging. There's a wonderful quote I found uh, last night by Mark Twain where he says, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> Some of the worst things in my life never happened. I would add to that. Most of what I think of as my life never happened. <laughs> uh, the wonderful mystic Hafiz says it similarly. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. In one sit, you can go from extreme bliss to extreme fear. In one sit. So what's interesting is not to know the bliss and to know the fear, but to start to know the knowing mind. So to look at the mind that knows bliss and to look at the mind that knows fear and then to start to see that the knowing is stable. So when we're first meditating, we're always focusing externally on the object of what we're noticing. So fear is arising. There's a sense of a me noticing the fear. Uh The second maturation of practice is when you can fully just feel fear until there's nothing left of you. There's just fear. There's just being terrified. And then I would say you could keep going one more level where when you can really be in what you feel, you can then look at the consciousness that's knowing the feeling. Look at that part of the mind that knows. Just like the Dalai Lama said to ask, well, who is knowing? So it's like you're turning around, and instead of looking at the object, you're looking at the knowing. And then you can see that the knowing is totally stable, like a mirror. It doesn't uh, uh, take the shape of fear. The knowing doesn't take the shape of bliss. It's just knowing. Uh, One of my first meditation teachers, Joseph Goldstein, uh, he used to always teach uh, with this line, 
Knowing is the openness of an open window. Knowing is the openness of the open window. Can you picture that? Windows open. And that sense of openness, that's knowing. Knowing doesn't take the shape of fear in the same way the ego does. So opening to fear is exactly the way you unwind it. The last thing I want to say about fear is that it's really important to know when things are too powerful. It's good to know when there is fear and it's got you and it's too much. And you have to just find some stability. You have to find your sanity. You have to find your breath. And it's okay to not be a heroic meditator and to know, I can't go down this path. Michael says it's okay. person next to me is sitting with it. But I can't sit with it. And to know that and know what you need to do. That's okay also. Because sometimes our, our trust really gets shattered. And we have some uh, experiences where you, we can't trust our body. So if fear arises, you may not know at a deep level that for you to feel that is okay. It's just like uh, when an animal in the wild gets traumatized, it will run off by itself under a tree or against a rock, and it'll shake. You see this with wolves, and you see this with tigers, jaguars. Many animals do this. Um, birds do this. They have a trauma, and they run off on their own, and they shake until their nervous system reorganizes, and then their breathing comes back, and then they've processed it. Well, human beings, we don't do that. Human beings, we have an experience. We don't have an experience. We have an event that happens that we can't experience. And in a way, from a Buddhist perspective, this is what trauma is. Trauma is when you have an event that's happened that you can't experience. So it's happened already to the sense organs. It's happened to the body. But your psyche can't actually process it. So you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it. And so sometimes, when that kind of fear shows up, you often need somebody else to kind of be in your presence so that uh, you can very slowly open to, to feel that, to be able to shake, maybe, to have somebody hold you. That's why I think mindfulness in therapeutic circles is just like assisted meditation where you're just learning how to just kind of be present in the room with someone to assist them to metabolize whatever they could not feel. Some psychologists even call therapy reparenting, which I think is a bit of a stretch, but in the sense that you know, you're, you're getting another chance to be held so that you can start to trust yourself. And you, we all see this, you know, in people like people who can't trust the police. 
how much of a population of our city can't trust the cops. Or you can't trust the institutions of the culture, the courts, the law, the police. We all know of people who've had uh, horrible experiences in hospitals, getting the wrong injection, the wrong blood. You know, how do you trust the hospital? So imagine you're in pain and you need help and you're being rushed to the hospital after you've had a bad experience there. I think of this when the air show comes to town. The air show is right along the lake here at Jameson. And Jameson Avenue is uh, covered in apartment buildings with people who have newly immigrated to Canada. Why? A lot of times because of war. And there they are on the uh, eve of the air show with those planes flying right on top of their buildings. So I think sometimes we need to be sensitive, too, in our uh, communities where people have been traumatized and knowing also that maybe they can't go as far as you in some areas. And then one day, maybe it's precisely those areas that will help them open to others. So this section of the Heart Sutra is saying exactly this, that fear has everything to do with the bodhisattva. To be able to give to fear without adding a leg. Give to fear without adding something extra. Give to your life without holding back. To be able to be in the energy of fearlessness. Far beyond deluded thoughts. This is nirvana. So this is a trick statement, right? Far beyond deluded thoughts, this is nirvana. Deluded thoughts about what? Deluded thoughts about nirvana. So what's nirvana? Nirvana is fearlessness. And what's fearlessness? Fearlessness is when you can actually hold the energy of fear and know how to respond to it creatively. That's fearlessness. If you think fearlessness is the absence of fear, then you've set up this dichotomy between nirvana and samsara. So far beyond this delusion that there is no fear in nirvana, we accept that in nirvana there also is going to be some fear. And that is the power of fearlessness. Ramana and I were talking on the way back from lunch about how sometimes in spiritual communities people uh, have this idea of how they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to be. And when you have this uh, idea of how you're supposed to be, it always is going to be at odds with some part of yourself that can't fit into that. Mm. Always. So fearlessness or nirvana is the energy of knowing when that's going on and finding a way to take care of the part that's being left out. I remember when uh, I first started in yoga, I used to go a lot to the Kripalu Center in Massachusetts. And it was the time when everyone there wore white, mostly. And there was this Jungian psychologist from London, Ontario, uh, named Marion Woodman, who was invited there to give a talk um, about female energy. And when she got there, she entitled her talk The Prostitute. 
And she came into the hall wearing a red dress. It was so wonderful. And, you know, she was in her late 60s at the time, wore this beautiful red dress, and came into this hall with everybody wearing white. So that's the energy of fearlessness. And there's a time to also trust that the form of your practice, and this is really where tradition comes in, has things built into it to take care of these shadows when they come up. So when you start looking deeply into a practice, it has built into it ways of dealing with these energies when it when they come up. But, that's the tradition. But our human communities sometimes forget that. So that's why here when we practice, you know, we have some formality. Our retreats are much more formal than this. But we have some formality. We bow, we light incense a certain way, we ring the bell a certain way. Uh, and also sometimes we set up like this. Right? Cushions all over the place. We're not in line. And then when we eat, we'll chant. And then, you know, we'll eat with our hands. Other people's spoons. So just to be able to go back and forth, nirvana, samsara, the form of formlessness, the ideals of practice, and what it's really like in this body. And this is to embrace fearlessness as a path. Not holding back. And I want to do some exercises around this this afternoon. What a shame to draw a snake and add it to it. So, does anybody have any comments or questions before we keep going? I know you're all suffering from chocolate cake. Yes? Um, I don't remember that well, actually. I remember um, everybody talking about it at mealtime later, but I don't. I don't remember what happened. Maybe people were too blissed out to even notice. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Fear? Fearlessness. I think it's really hard to be afraid. Yeah. Like not just the experience of it, but to be allowed to be afraid. Because everyone comes along and wants to fix it. Yeah. And solve it. You mean people around you come yeah. and they want to fix your I, fear? I think that. Yeah. Point you in a direction, or mm-hmm. push it through. Yeah. I grew up very conditioned into um, numbing it, you know, not mm. showing any fear. And how do, how do you do that? With food or <laughs> shopping or 
you know, just quickly zone away from it, you know, just don't put your lens on it, you know, mm -hmm. look away, mm -hmm. wait until it, you know, sort of mm -hmm. do something else, mm -hmm. do it, do it, smoke, drink, or mm -hmm. take drugs. Mm -hmm. We even drink, and also we drink alcohol against, you know, fear. Have a glass of yeah. vodka. Yeah. Feel uncomfortable? Drink a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nervous for that job interview? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the way the way I grew up was uh, you have a fear you just there's a specific fear you have you just go and you just what it. you conquer it you go and conquer it. So how do you conquer it? So if you're afraid to jump from four meters, you jump from four meters. Right. You just, you know, and then maybe you can do it that day, but then you just go next day and try it and do yeah. it the day after, and eventually, eventually you're going to jump. Yeah. yeah. Where the way I do it now is I just, I'm okay with the fear. Uh-huh. And I decide if I want to conquer it, or if I don't. Yeah. Or if I so fear is this thing to be conquered. That's that's yeah. what I grew up, yeah. yeah. And mainly it was like, you know, doing four things. Mm -hmm. I can do this, but my body can't do it by so and I'm asleep to do it wrong and I gotta do it. Yeah. Mainly considered it from jumping from high places. You have a double day. Yeah. Yeah. You fall off a horse, get back on. So fear is a sign of weakness. Yeah, yeah, that idea that if you're fearful, then you're weak. And that's mm -hmm. problematic. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Negative. Yeah. How does fear show up in your, in your life? Yeah. I feel like I'm very, very angry. And when I look into it really closely, there's some fear um, associated with it. And it could be something really unreasonable, like, or very small, and mm -hmm. then it just showed up as a huge Has anyone ever been fearful of their anger? Have you ever been angry and scared of it? John? Fear of overreacting. Fear of overreacting. Yeah. And harming somewhere else for myself and yeah. having to suffer the result of guilt yeah. remorse. Mm. Going allowing your, your anger to take you too far. Yeah. I find if I open to fear, a tip of fear, the connections of all the things I'm afraid of like my attention quickly like floods into them yeah so it's like I feel like I avoid even going there to begin with because there's no there's no control over stopping like yeah. you know, the wide angle lens on the <laughs> uh -huh. someone else how does fear show up how does fear show up you just speak a little louder. Sorry. I don't think I 
experience, I recognize here, for itself, uh -huh. but I recognize the signs of that I'm trying to Okay. Like, um, I share with some people that I used to eat a lot. Uh -huh. And I was in a, in a very unhappy place. Mm -hmm. uh, like, literally, geographically, in an unhappy place. Uh -huh. but I was unhappy as well. Yeah. I didn't realize that I was afraid of something. But yeah. I realized that I gained like 50 pounds or something. Uh -huh. And as soon as I didn't have the fear anymore, I lost all the weight. Oh. The so fear can be good padding. <laughs> yeah. In my case, it was. Uh, the avoidance, rather. Exactly. Yeah. The numbness of the dissociation. It's like, no, I really like this life, and I'm okay with that, but yeah. a lot of padding. <laughs> yeah. So, in my case, I recognize when I'm running away from something that I'm looking for the numbness. Like, uh, it could be even like going to the rest of week or in the morning. Mm -hmm. Or like just hiding from, from stuff. Yeah. So some people call it discipline. I can have other thoughts about it. Yeah. <laughs> you see this too in people who um, do too many yoga classes. Yeah. We all see this. In yoga, yoga can't sit still. It's just it's another form of over exercise. Real restlessness, anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's like addiction. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, addiction is a fear of what? Fear to say just broadly. Losing. Of losing. Losing what? The mind, anything. Losing your losing mind? Friends, losing yourself. Yeah, what if someone sees me like this? <laughs> and of course the thing is, is when then somebody really sees you like that, no big deal for them. They're like, oh, finally, I've always wanted to see this side of you. <laughs> right? You're so scared to show this side and then someone sees it. For us, that quote is saying, we build ourselves a place apart behind like words and teeth and blood, but it will be agitated apart with someone. Yeah. Someone finds us out. And it's a relief for everybody. Yeah. I, I get a real like flight or flight response. Like, yeah. My drone rushes. Um, that's how I know that I'm afraid of something. Mm -hmm. It's a really good feeling, actually. That's <laughs> the problem with being a little bit of a junkie. Like, you get. Uh huh. You feel really alive, right? Like your, your juices are flowing and everything. You're yeah. Really addicted, actually. Yeah. There's a great book called um, How, How War Gives Us Meaning. War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning by Chris Hedges. And it's a... Uh, uh, Chris Hedges was a journalist at the time for the New York Times. And it's, it's an incredible book. It's biographical. And it's his interest in why journalists and soldiers 
um, have so much energy for war and why they want to keep going back and why they want to cover you know, the worst atrocities. And then when they come home, they can't have a family or they just start uh, using substances. And they just can't wait to get the next assignment to go back. And um, it's a real Buddhist analysis, actually, of war. Because underneath it, he says, because when you really know an enemy, and you can really say that this is right and this is wrong, it gives your life meaning. Even though it's a total delusion, he concludes at the end of his book. Which is addiction. Which has so much to do with with fear. You know, uh, my friend Chodo from New York, who does hospice work, uh, he always says, you know, you always have to choose every moment, love or fear. Love or fear. Okay. Let's stop here. We'll take a little break, and then we're going to do some uh, group exercises together about that. That's beautiful. That's fearful. That's fearful. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll do lots of them. So I'd like to set the room up uh, during our break into a circle. So let's see if we can pull that off. And uh, 